All right, KISS Army, welcome to the KISS FAQ podcast. Thank you for letting us into your head. I hope we don't do any damage. This is a KISS-related podcast by the board for the board. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to episode 21 of the KISS FAQ podcast. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Julian Gill, and today I'm joined by Ken, 69 Blizzard, right? Yes, thank you. Hallelujah. And Lonnie, welcome back. What's up? Uh, we have a new face today, Mark, and uh, I'll let you tell everyone about yourself in a moment, but uh, first I'd like to thank everyone to listening for listening to the last couple of shows. We hit you with a couple of long episodes last week, the uh, interview of Mark Slaughter, and obviously the other episode, which I can't remember what the heck it was about, um, but I'm having one of those days, so uh, you, you can all yeah, post... Uh, oh, it was the books. Yeah, okay. The books. And uh, one of the things I didn't mention on the show, um, because it was about our favorites, one book that didn't get a mention was Dale Sherman's Black Diamond. And I do want to just... Yeah, I do want to just throw that out there, that Dale was tremendously supportive of the Kiss Album Focus project when we were originally writing that for the Kiss Asylum website. He gave me a couple of interviews that he hadn't used... Um, for that with uh, Bob and Kenny Kerner. So, you know, th- that was some great stuff, and he-, he was a big supporter of me. His book was the motivation for me to do an album-by-album focus online um, to kind of go into the detail and minutia that he wouldn't be able to with a publisher. So, you know, here's a shout-out to Dale and his book. Uh, while it didn't get a specific mention, it's been very important to me as a fan, as was his second book, Black Diamond 2, which was, uh, you know, more collector-oriented. Yes. So, you know, we, we don't want to leave you out of the conversation, Dale. You're still there. Um, so let's jump into introductions for Mark, you know, new face on the show. So thank you very much for joining us. I've given you our kind of standard template of questions to introduce, to introduce yourself to everyone with. So why don't you go ahead and, um, you know, just run through those questions and tell everyone about yourself as a fan. All right. Well, uh, obviously, my name is Mark. Um, on the board, I'm referred to as Marcus Almighty, which is actually a reference to obviously the first part of my name and my favorite movie actually for a long time was Bruce Almighty. So I kind of used that in kind of making my uh, name there. Um, I think some of the questions that were asked, well, besides the fact that I'm from Toronto, uh, actually just. You breathed. <laughs> you, you're cutting out. You... Toronto. I live in Brampton. Uh-oh. Three, my older sister, she's about seven years older than me. She was a huge, and still is a huge Kiss fan, and uh, she had a bunch of the records at home. And when I was uh, unfortunately sharing a bedroom with her, she used to always play uh, Kiss stuff all the time, apart with other stuff. But thankfully, she played a lot of Kiss, and uh, I guess that got me into it, and uh the first actual album that I got was I got Kiss Alive from uh, her for Christmas. I think it was the following year in 84 I got it from her. And uh, I remember it was quite a eye-opening experience. Uh, when I got it, I went into my room and slapped on a pair of headphones. And for the next hour or so, I was just in another world pretty much listening to it. Uh, at that point, I had just went to my first concert 
the year before, which was Rush at Maple Leaf Gardens for the Grace Under Pressure tour. So kind of hearing a live show on headphones again, it kind of brought me back to that first concert I went to, although obviously Kiss has way more bombs and stuff like that than Rush did at that <laughs> point. But, yeah. you know, but uh, it was a it was an interesting experience. Um, as far as my favorite album by Kiss, um, my favorite record is actually Rock and Roll Over. Uh, I've always thought that that's kind of the... Uh, the record, you know, when everybody says, what record would you, you know, Aliens Land, or what would you let them hear first? It would be that one. I mean, I think that's kind of the trademark Kiss sound, what I would always thought Kiss should sound like on record. And uh, that's my favorite pick. I mean, a close second, actually, and I don't know how many people would be kind of surprised about this, but my close second is actually Asylum. I really dug that record when it came out, and that actually leads into... The last question that I was asked, which was my favorite KISS member. Now, I might get a little bit of heat from this, but my favorite KISS member is actually Bruce Kulick. And uh, the reason why I picked Bruce Kulick is because through all the years here, well, actually the last year or so that I've been listening to podcasts, everybody's been going on about, did Vinny save KISS? Did Vinny save KISS? And actually, I totally don't like that question. I think of anything, I think Bruce Kulick saved KISS. He came in at a very crucial time for Kiss. Damn it. Nervous time with this guy, right? Then they bring in Mark St. John, who didn't work out at, uh, at all with them. I mean, if you weren't a, a band member at that time, like, you know, like Paul or Gene, you know, having all that stuff happen would probably make you want to pack it in after a while with all this stuff going on. And here comes Bruce, and, you know, he turned out to be a great guitar player. But more importantly, a team player. And I think he gave them stability through the rest of that time that he was with them. And, you know, all the way up to, to the, uh, you know, the reunion, he was with them. And, and I never heard a peep about him, you know, being a bad influence or anything in that group. So I think that if anybody, he saved Kiss and he's my favorite member. I've met him a few times at the NAMM show. And I'll always say that he's my favorite Kiss member. That's awesome. I mean, I almost wanted to start chanting MVP, 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 you know, when you brought up Bruce, because he's really been an MVP for the band um, for a long part of their history. So, you know, that's great to get someone, you know, give Bruce a shout out. And while we're talking about Bruce, he's got a new album out. You know, he's got KKB Revisited. That's his 1974 recordings that they found the multitracks to. Um, You know, so go to Bruce Kulik's website. That's uh, Kulik.net. And uh, check out that CD. Um, it's also supposed to be up on iTunes very soon. So uh, they've done some work on some of the songs. They have a new song, and they've mixed in some symphony or uh, orchestration into one of them. So it should be a a, a good uh, a good mix of that really classic trio cream type stuff that boggles my mind. So Mark, thanks for the introduction. Uh, you're cutting in a little, cutting out a little bit. So if you freeze up. We're just going to kind of continue as as we go along, um, yeah. and um, I, I don't think it'll make any point for us to wave at the screen. At like uh, you know, you're you're cutting and you're cutting out. It, it's just how it is. So uh, okay. if we cut out on you, just go with the flow. Uh, don't try and restart the Skype or anything. Um, so okay, let's go. All right. Uh, thanks for the introduction, Mark. Um, today's topic is kind of based on 40th anniversaries. Um, 
2015 is obviously the 40th anniversary of 1975. So in with that kind of idea and topic, uh, we want to just start on some of the big 40th anniversary things that KISS are really going to go through this year. And we're not going to do it by KISS numbers who seem to celebrate their 40th anniversaries in their 43rd year or whenever it's convenient to brand something KISS 40. Because why aren't they on their KISS 40 tour right now? When yeah. they're when they're forty three years old, okay. Um, so we're going to talk about Dress to Kill, and that was the third of the original. I guess the originals released. It came out March what March nineteenth ish, nineteen seventy five. Um, same night they're doing a club show in Northampton. So this was the final of the of the studio albums that becomes part of, I guess, the core part of the catalog, because it's the end of the first phase of the band. They're still leather. They're still dangerous. They haven't really done anything extraordinarily uh, challenging musically. It's still meat and potatoes, basic. Um, so let's start off with personal opinions of the album. I mean, first impressions when you heard it. Lonnie? Um, Dress to Kill wasn't an album that I bought right away when I was um, a kid collecting the uh, Kiss catalog because I had, you know, I would, I would I'd pick and choose which, which albums I would get because I had double platinum and I, I would go to the record store and I'd be like, okay, well, I have double platinum and I'd look at Dress to Kill and like, well, it has Rock and Roll Night on it. I have that. It has She on there. I have that. It has Come On and Love Me on there. I have that. I have Rock Bottom because that's on a live, you know, and I had a live and I had double platinum. So it's just like, oh, I don't, there's, a, you know, what about, you know, Asylum and Crazy Nights, so I was collecting just other ones at the time, so it wasn't like with the solo album, just whatever, getting as much kits as I could. I kind of waited to get Dressed to Kill for a while until I had some more of the other ones, and when I did, um, I was really, really happy with it. Um, just to me, you know, Kiss and Hotter Than Hell with the Kerner Wise production. We both know the production on, we all agree that the production on Hotter and Hell isn't terrific. And the production on the first album isn't as good as it could have been either because, I mean, like those Kramer demos, I, I, I love so much more than this production of the songs that ended up on the first album. But I was really happy with the way that Dress to Kill sounded with the production at Electric Lady and with Neil Bogart producing it. I think they kind of got Kiss on track on the way that they should sound on vinyl in the studio um, as opposed to those first two albums and song wise I, I think just looking at those songs as a group but take out She and take out Love Her All I Can because they're obviously from the Wicked Lester days but you know when they recorded the album they didn't have a lot of material left because they had just put out two albums and they're recording their third album in, a, in basically a year so, you know, it was literally a case of, you know, lock your, lock the band in a room and make them record some songs. And what they came up with, to me, is, are some of the best tracks um, that the band has put out in, in, a, in a collection of ten songs, anyway. Um, like, come on, and, come on and Love Me, Rock Bottom, Anything For My Baby, and Rock and Roll Night. I mean, those songs are just, just classic rock tunes. And if you were like you guys were saying earlier, if you want to make someone listen to Kiss for the first time, um, of what Kiss sounds like, Rock and Roll Over is a great example. But I think Dress to Kill is also 
a great example of just a rock record, someone who likes rock, like 70s classic rock, and really maybe not doesn't have a lot of respect for Kiss. Dress to Kill is one of those albums you listen to. You know what? Kiss is not just a band with makeup and bombs. Listen to this. This is just, this is what to me, 70s classic era Kiss is all about with just, you know, because you, you have the rock anthem, you have the, you know, the, the um, sexual driven songs as well that Kiss has had forever in their, in their catalog. It, it's just a really terrific template of what the band stands for and what the band sounds like and should sound like in the studio it's i mean i and i, I don't think anybody's going to disagree that it, i can't that, that it's not a good album i mean it's just it's just kiss at their finest all right mark what what are you, what were your first impressions of the album how do you how do you find it sonically um i agree a lot of with what uh is it lonnie sorry I'm yes I'm sorry. yeah it's yeah i agree with a lot with lonnie said um one thing i've want to say uh, from my end of it and I didn't I still actually believe it or not don't own a CD copy of Dress to Kill I've always had it first on cassette for the longest time and then I've actually had it on album that's the way I've been listening to it for the longest time I've actually just even just bought the reissued one now which I really love hey there you go <laughs> and uh but I gotta say um I agree about the whole production thing one thing that's interesting of note is everybody keeps bringing up uh Neil Bogart being the one you know, to help bring Kiss into that, you know, slightly better sound. But I I actually give props to Dave Whitman, the engineer, who engineered that record, because um, he, I think, had a lot to do with the bettering of the sound. I mean, number one, they went back to New York to do the record. They were in a studio that they were comfortable and familiar with, which is important, being a musician as well. I know that that's kind of an important thing, um, to be in an environment that you're comfortable with. And he was a great engineer and he they used him quite a lot later on i mean he was he engineered lick it up he engineered asylum he engineered a bunch of their albums later on as well and uh i think that it shows like whenever he was engineering their stuff that he did quite a great job i mean you know they were pressured to go back in to do it really quickly which is a a credit to them that the record turned out as good as it did because of that because it's you know difficult to, under those circumstances i'm sure to come up with good songs and uh but i mean i think they also tried a bunch of other stuff too as well on this record i mean this is the first album from what i understand that they started uh mixing an acoustic guitar underneath the electrics for some of their songs like come on and love me it's placed underneath quietly subtly as a layering thing and i mean those little things help in broadening your sound and i think that uh just these little things and his Skill. I mean, I'm sure Bogart had something to do with it as well. I mean, I'm sure he didn't like something, he brought it up, right? But, uh, you know, I really like the record. Um, it's probably in my top ten, not top five, but in my top ten. And, uh, yeah, I I don't have anything negative to say about it. I mean, I like all the songs. I think that my least favorite is uh, um, Anything for My Baby is the only song I kind of uh, could do without on the record. But... Um, other than that, I I think that record's great, and like I said, I just think that the, it was a big step production-wise, obviously, a lot better than Hotter Than Hell, better than the first album, but uh, yeah, I think that the production really helped with that, and you know, what else can you say? It's a great, it's a, it's a great record, the best of the first three, I think. 
I think you bring up a great point with Neil Bogart, and I think that's why most of the songs on this album are like in the short two-minute range. You know, he was pop. He wanted short, concise, bubblegum pop, and, you know, anything from My Baby Screams, Paul Stanley bringing a song to Neil, saying, what do you think about this? And he's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you know, do that. You know, it, it's just fluff. It's just, it's catchy. It's everything that you'd want out of, like, the kind of the generic radio disposable hits, you know, that he was just, as, and that's Bogart was famous for. Dave Whitman is another great point. Um, obviously, he was there for the 1973 demo, so they had a rapport with him going way back. I mean, I believe Whitman engineered in the studio for Eddie Kramer when they did the March 73 recordings. I'd have to fact check myself, but off the top of I my head... So. Yeah, off the top of my head, that's what I believe. But then you get Bogart, who it's probably another similar situation. It's I've always felt that Neil had more to do with it in terms of guidance than actual twisting knobs. Um, I see that being the engineer's role more to capture the sound, and Neil's just there going, yeah, 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 that sounds good, that sounds good, that song, eh, you know, and being more of an advisor. I think this is more of a self-produced album, really, and that Neil's would be Neil would be credited these days more as associate producer um, or executive producer, whatever. So it, it's like details like that. Ken, what were your, I mean, did you get this on day of release? No, I did not. Um, because I didn't start buying kiss records until 1977. So it took me, this, I, I want to say this is the last album I bought out of the first when I started getting the back catalog from, uh, before Alive 2, um, I think it was about a couple years later, like 79 or 80, that I asked for Dress to Kill for Christmas, and uh, fortunately it was delivered by Santa Claus. Um, uh, so it was a lot, one of the last ones. Um, I think the album is a, a, a good album, not their best album. Um, the, the sound is clean. I like the clean Christmas, you know, crispness to it, um, because I think uh, if they would have not fired Kenny Kerner and Richie, what? <clears throat> excuse me, Kenny Kerner and Richie Wise, um, we may have gotten a more muddled effort. I don't know what they would have done after Hotter Than Hell. I mean, that one was kind of sonically, um, you know, it was just muddy to me. But I mean, now it's kind of like. Um, it's it's an album that you say, okay, well, you know what? It's it's classic, and that sound fits that album because we're so used to it. I think after so many years of listening to it that way, but uh, this album, Just to Kill, is a good album. Has a lot of classic songs. Uh, pushing them into the do the record so quickly, I think we have uh, unrealized, uh, you know couple of songs on there i would call still demo form um at least the gene uh songs i think are not fully realized i think they could have been even better i mean they're they're catchy decent songs but uh i think something was missing there um i'm glad they fully realized the wicked lester songs and brought those back um to you know they could have just left it and it, we would have never had them Right, it could have been just wicked less only. We would, never would have thought that they would have turned into these great songs that they are now. Um, so, it's a great album. Um, Rock and roll night. I know uh, 
he talked about uh, Neil Bogart. Uh, yeah, he's a pop guy. He told him to write an anthem, and they they came up with the uh, you know rock and roll all night. So and they've been trying to write anthems or trying to match that ever since then um, throughout the career. Uh, so, but I'm glad they did it. I, I wish they would have had a, a guitar solo on Rock and Roll Night on the uh, Just to Kill version, like they did on Alive. I think that could have propelled it a little bit, you know, higher on the charts. I think they only hit around 68, I think it was, um, uh, on the Billboard charts. But uh, it's a great album. Uh, I wouldn't call it one of my favorite ones because it's it's close to the Kiss sound. But like uh, Mark was talking earlier, you know, rock and roll over. That's the kiss sound to me, the true kiss sound. Like it's a, almost, you know, it's a live sound. So um, that's when they sound best. So it's a great album. So I mean, you you talk about there being you know some songs that feel like they're unrealized demos, and I think the story for Dress to Kill really starts in January. Uh, obviously, a lot of people are going to know last year four demos did leak from Larrabee Studios, um, they include Burning Up a Fever, which obviously was not used on the album, Anything From a Baby, Rock and Roll All Night, and another song that dated back to the first album, I believe, uh, Mistake. So I'm just going to play a little bit of Mistake. This is an unrealized demo from Dress to Kill, um, Mistake. Okay, that's all I can handle of that. I think uh, that would have been good on, a, on an Eagles album. Yeah, slide guitar, yeah, exactly. slide guitar, and a Kiss album just would not work. I don't think you can see why it was left off. Yeah. So, getting back to the the January stuff, uh, I think last year also uh, an acetate was sold at auction uh, for Rock and Roll All Night with its original title of "I Want to Rock and Roll All Day and Party All Night." So, uh, some cool some cool stuff out there in terms of the demos. Um, Let's talk Wicked Lester. Were those the right two Wicked Lester songs to kind of revisit? Obviously, a lot of the stuff from Wicked Lester they could never have used because it was all purchased and they hadn't written it themselves. But I, going back in a revisionist way, I, I look at it and why on earth did they not do Keep Me Waiting? They could have totally kissed that up or I guess now that we've heard Simple Type, could they have done that? What are you guys' thoughts on you know, the Wicked Lester connection, Ken? Um, I think they chose the, the right two songs. Um, the one, uh, um, Keep Me Waiting, yeah, I think that could have made it too. They, they could have really been uh, hardened up and maybe uh, changed up a little bit in, uh, you know, timing. But uh, I think it's a great one. I, I don't know what else they could have used. I mean, I still hear flutes and things in my head sometimes when <laughs> I think about Wicked Lester. So, um, to me, they chose the right two songs. I'm glad they brought those back um, again because, you know, we, we might have never had any of those in a in a Kiss form. Yeah, she had long been in the in the band set live anyway, so that one makes sense. And I guess Neil Bogart would probably have had a bit to say, well, love her all I can. I mean, that's just a nice little piece of pop. You know, it's not dangerous. It's 
kind of nice and easy. So, and it had been in the band set in the early, you know, in 73, so no real surprise. Mark, what do you think of the Wicked Lester stuff? Any, any of the other songs that you would have liked to have seen them do? Um, well, I think personally that the one song that they um, did right with is She. I think that that's one that they, uh, you know, like you said, had in the set for a long time and they were used to playing it and it would have been probably pretty simple to just get down decently at the studio. Um, the other one, I mean, I could have took it in or leave and take it or leave it. Right. Um, I, I'd like simple type. I think that's a pretty interesting song that could have been done, but I mean, on the whole, I think that they were right doing the two that they did. I mean, like I said, with, with Bogart there, I think that he would have been strong, in that area, like picking out something from their past, listening to it, and probably thinking what they could have, you know, polished up a bit and made it more of a more of a kiss song. And I think the two they picked were were good. I I, I don't think that I would have taken anything else off of Wicked Lester. I'm like, can I? Whenever I hear that stuff, it's just flutes and, and reminds me of Justin O'Tull and all kinds of other stuff that just doesn't remind me of Kiss. So I think that the two that they picked are the right ones. Lonnie. Yeah, I think it's the the natural choices. I mean, she, obviously, I mean, it's, you know, it, it became a standard. It was, it was a standard in their set list, and it just, the electric version of it just kills in comparison to what they recorded for, for Wicked Lustre. I mean, it, it, it just sounds like a natural Kiss song, though. I mean, it, it just, it, I mean, it, when I first heard the, the demo, when I first heard the Wicked Lustre version of she, I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, how they how they took it from what it was and turned it into this really, you know, dri- you know, riff driven song. It, just, it was just a natural fit, and and love her all I can. It, it, it's one of my favorite songs off the album, and like you were saying, I can I can see definitely why it was selected because it's it's very catchy, it's very poppy, it's very you know, it's very safe, it's very Neil Neil Bogart's stamp on that on that song. I, I think they they chose the right ones. I. I I think that Keep Me Waiting maybe wouldn't have fit in as, as well as Love Her All I Can fit in on that album. Um, and I think and I, and I think that if they would have selected Keep Me Waiting, we'd be sitting here going, you know, Love Her All I Can is a really good song. I would really like to see what they could have done with that. <laughs> so that being said, I, I, I think they definitely made the right two choices. All right, let's talk favorites then. You know, top two tracks on the album. You know, gonna throw gonna throw you in the fire and make you think fast. Pick two, Ken. Uh, you got to start with me, right? Um, a- okay. Absolutely. You look most uncomfortable by the question. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard. I mean, God, it's an easy thing to just say rock and roll all night, but because it's such a classic, and but I, I just can't go with that anymore. Um, I'm gonna say this is kind of my hidden gems. I'd have to say is uh, Getaway. I really like that uh, that song. That's a Ace written song, I believe, and Peter singing it. Um, it's the only Peter song on the on the album uh, that he sings, and uh, I really, I really love that one. Um, otherwise, um, I'm gonna say the other one that I like most uh, is uh, Room Service. Um, it's a great lead off song. Um, kind of tells the story of what was going on at the time with Paul um, 
getting his room service. So uh, those are, I'm going to go with those two as my, my favorites. As for now, that could always change, you know, in another <laughs> next week. Yeah, and I think that's the underlying theme. It's a concept album in some ways, isn't it? You know, room service, you know, on the road, ladies in waiting, on the road, get away, maybe, on the road, uh, you know, come on and love me, on the road. So it, it's kind of, they're writing from their life experience at the time as well. They go into the studio, they're working out songs, and it, all they've got to work on is, well, what have we done for the last what is it, you know, year, we've been on the road and sampling the buffet of life. So, Lonnie, couple favorites of yours from the album. Definitely, Come On and Love Me. It's, yeah. It's maybe my favorite, it, it, it's probably my favorite Kiss song. It just, to me, that song is what the band is just all about. It's catchy, it has a great solo, it's just... It's, it's me. That song is just Kiss at their finest, and they don't they don't play it live enough for my taste. I mean, I, in my opinion, they should play that live every night. It's just should be a standard in the set list. But I guess if they played it live every live every night, we'd be sitting here saying, "God, we have to hear Come On and Love Me Again." <laughs> but I think I think that is that is just Kiss at their finest. And like I said, Love Her All I Can is one of my favorites off the album. I'd say that'd be my second favorite. And I think it's so cool that we can, there's 10 songs here and like, just so far, just between two of us picking, there's four different songs. And that's what's so cool about being a Kiss fan is that you can put 10 songs, everybody has a different taste on them though. It's not like there's, it's not like there's like three good songs on the album and the rest of them are just crap. I mean, it's just one of the coolest things about it. I just want to say that, but love all I can and come on and love me for sure. Yeah. And come on and love me is obviously one of my picks. That's one of my all time favorite songs. Like, uh, I guess a lot of people, my first exposure to this album was through Double Platinum. I didn't get this for a long time either because, obviously, limited budget back as a teen. I saw there's more songs on Double Platinum by that. And so I, I got very used to the versions. The Well, number one, the rock, rock, and rock bottom intro being tacked on to the beginning of, of uh, She on that album for some odd reason. So when I finally heard this album, I was like, oh, wow, this is different. And it sounds different. But Coming on Love Me is one of my all-time favorite songs. I would love to hear that back in the set. I think being a little bit lower in terms of its voice, maybe Paul would be able to handle that a little bit better than some of the other stuff. And it's a live era, so it's a classic. Um, I'm going to try and guess my second one is going to be Rock Bottom. Love the, just love the swagger on that one. It's kind of funky. Um, great song. But it, it's so easy. Again, ten songs. And they're 10 good songs. I don't think there's anything I despise. Uh, we'll get to the least favorite shortly, but, uh, you know, it's 10 very good songs. Mark, what are your favorites on the album? Well, I think it's pretty easy for me. I mean, I think the one right off the bat, I got to say Room Service. I mean, the first time I heard that song, when I first came up, I really loved that Room Service. I mean, I thought it was so catchy the first time I heard it. Um Great song. Um, actually, the, my second favorite song off of it, and this is also probably has to do more with the fact that, like I said, I got Alive first. And when I heard this on Alive the first time, I really, really dug it being a guitar player as well. And it was, you know, when I started learning to play guitar and stuff, it was rock bottom. Um, I really loved that whole intro sequence that they do at the beginning with the two guitars and always thought it was really strong. And I mean, it's 
pretty obvious in the writing credit who wrote what. I mean, Ace obviously wrote the top bit, and Paul wrote the structure of the main song, I would say, right? But, uh, yeah, I, I've always loved the live version of that. But on, on record, it's really good, too. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure that the album has a longer acoustic beginning than the live. Yeah, I think it sounds really good. And once again, that record was where they started pulling out the acoustic guitars a little bit more as well. So it kind of fit for that song, obviously. And uh, I just think it's really strong. I mean, like you guys were saying before, I mean, these favorites can change with all of us, I'm sure, on a daily basis. Like tomorrow, something else could be a favorite, right? But uh, those two have always kind of stuck in my uh, mind as being the ones that I always... I mean, heck, ask me in five minutes what my favorites are, and they probably will have changed. About... Yeah, exactly. But I mean, like, you know, and I mean, it's also like she's also one that kind of comes and goes on a on a daily basis with me as well. I mean, especially the live version of that. I, I've always, you know, loved the whole live version of that with the whole guitar solo bit tacked in on it as well, right? I mean, that's that's the guitar player in me talking, right, when I hear stuff like that, right? But I mean... As of right now, I'd say Room Service and uh, Rock Bottom, they're definitely my two favorites from that record, for sure. I think one of the coolest things on the album, and I, I guess more so in, in live performance, classic era, Ace. During She, yeah. that song, live, is just you know fantastic. But does the album suffer from a lack of guitar solos? I mean, that's one of the things that is often lobbed at this. I mean, here you've got she with, you know, obviously he borrowed part of the riff of five to one or something, uh, you know, for that solo. Does it lack guitars? Ken, what do you think on that? Yes. Uh, I think it does. Um, I think what, one of either the, can't remember which one is two timer ladies in waiting, right? It has, I don't believe it has a guitar solo in it. Um, and then, uh, uh, the other one, uh, what was the other one? We didn't have a guitar solo, but um, yeah, I think they could have had. All night. Uh, that's it. I said that earlier, didn't I? Um, so rock and roll all night was another one, and I think uh, normally you get a little bit more fills of of Ace's work uh, throughout a song, even ending a song. You'll he'll trail off on a guitar solo sometimes, and we're, we don't get that really here so much. Um, it would have been nice. I think they they rushed it. Uh, they rushed this album, and this may be uh, is this the shortest album. Definitely, well, yeah. It's it's the shortest right. album. It's, it's uh it's, yeah. So they were really scraping the bottom of the barrel, not in quality of songs, but in amount of songs they had to to uh, record. So uh, yeah, I think they should have had a little bit more uh, guitar work in there from Ace. I think one rumor is is that they actually made the gap between the tracks longer yeah. to make mm -hmm. the album seem longer, um, which it's I don't like 15 know. 15 minutes per side when you put it on. They had the, the trial length. Yeah, there was, like, on the original vinyl, I heard that the with the first pressing of it, I'm not, I'm not sure if this is true, but on, I read somewhere that they actually had three to almost four second gappings in between songs just to just to space it out and to make it seem like a longer record than it actually was. Yeah, I guess they could have pressed the album on a 45, it's so short, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it, when, whenever we say that you've uh, you've jammed too much music onto the side of uh, one side of vinyl, I guess in this case, 
most of the pressing should be absolutely incredible in terms of audio fidelity. So, because yeah. that 15 minutes is right, well under the what 22 minutes recommended for vinyl per side. Let's go into some of the live stuff. Um, they they go on tour in March of '75, and in the set list is "Come On and Love Me" and "She," and that's it. No rock and roll all night. No nothing else. Are those the right two songs to present this live this uh, album live, Lonnie? Come on, love me, and she work great live. I, I think those are those are great choices to work with to start on. Why rock and roll night wasn't included in the set list initially is really crazy to me. Um, I mean, as much as we're all tired of hearing that song, but and as much as they talk about how oh yeah we went in the studio to do it to. To, to write an anthem, you know, but then they go out on tour and they don't play it right away. It's really kind of, really kind of strange that, I mean, and you wouldn't even know that unless you, you wouldn't even think that, that, oh, well, of course rock and roll, that was on the set list immediately when they went out on tour to support the album, but come on and love me and she work great live. We were talking about that a little bit ago. Those are, those are perfect choices. Um, but, you know, not having rock bottom in there, which obviously they did later and, um, I thought that was, I think that's kind of strange too because I think Rock Bottom works really well live, you know, going with the transition from from the first part to the second part. So um, it's kind of strange they put, you know, the, the, maybe they didn't have a lot of confidence in the material at first because they wrote it so quickly um, and they were afraid to test the waters with it right away because it was written, you know, you know they were they were running out of out of tunes, and maybe thought maybe they thought these songs didn't stand up to what they had on on Kiss and Hotter Than Hell. But I'm glad that you know. Obviously, I'm glad they expanded it to what they did. But it's kind of strange that they only used the two initially. Mark, what do you think on that? I I have to agree with Lonnie. I think it had more to do with familiarity and comfort when they first started. I, I mean, she, like we all said, was already in the set since the beginning. So, I mean, that was a no-brainer, and I guess, I'm guessing Come On and Love Me, being as catchy as it is, is probably not exactly the hardest song to learn as a band. So that was probably simple enough to get down relatively smoothly for a live setting. I mean, um, yeah, why Rock and Roll Night wasn't in there, I guess only they'll know that. Um, but, I mean, the, the funny thing is, as they w- went on later on in time, I'm guessing more in the Alive era of the touring was when they started bringing in a lot of the other songs like i mean being a a video collector back when you know video collecting was the big thing of the bootleg shows i got both the kobo hall shows and was surprised to see ladies in waiting in there the one night that they played it and i mean even that sounded really cool live i mean why didn't put some of these other songs in at the beginning i think it has just more to do with uh what they were comfortable with and what they thought were the strong songs at the time. I mean, you know, who knows how long the record was out Well, when they started back on the road again, you know, did they get enough feedback from the fans to, you know, to even hear what people liked, you know, maybe they just played the ones that they knew would do well. Like I said, she, they've already known how that went over live and come on and love me. I'm guessing they probably figured that would go over, you know, pretty well. And it wasn't too long a song. So if they didn't like it, it was over and like, you know, just about three minutes anyways, right? So I'm 
I'm just guessing it's, you know, familiarity and what they're comfortable with is why. But uh, the rock and roll night thing, I think everybody will kind of scratch their heads about that, why that wasn't in there. I mean, after all, after all the big push for it and the big stories about why they wrote it and this and that to now put it in with their set list, it just, you know, doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it's, it's really weird. At the beginning, they hit the road, they released the album. There's no single release at the same time. Um, Rock and Roll All Night as a single comes out in May, I believe, late April, early May. So, you know, that's a good chunk of time has passed on the road. We get into, I'm, I'm just looking at some set lists here, April 19th, uh, Palatine, Illinois. You know, you get room service in the set then, and at the sound check they rehearsed, uh, uh, well, room service. So my notes are off here. So you, you get... <laughs> You get other songs starting to come into the set in April, um, but the single's still not out, so it, it's it's kind of odd. I mean, Come On and Love Me, easy song. I mean, hell, I can play that, um, and I'm a pretty crap guitarist, so it's it's not much of a challenge to have done that, and she, like everyone said, is they would have known that easily. They should be able to do that in their sleep after you know, a hundred and something concerts the previous year where it was performed at the most of them. Um, do they, does it sound like they have faith in this album? Lonnie? No, I don't think so. Like, I, I think that like they were scraping for, for songs and they were just coming up with songs that they could put on album because they're forced to do this third album. And I don't think they had a lot of confidence in what they were, in what they were doing. Like, they knew that Come On and Love Me was a good, I think they knew Come On and Love Me is a good song. So let's put that in the set. And, She's a good. She. We've already been doing that, but I. I don't think they. They had a lot of confidence in what they had put out. That. That they weren't ready to write another album yet. They had just done two, and they had used up about everything that that they had in their tank. And I think that they. They thought that. You know, and yeah. you know, if it wasn't for Alive, that they thought this could be the end of the road. Yeah, but by May, I, I agree with that actually. Ken, thoughts. Um, they weren't, uh, they weren't confident in the album and they weren't, you know, they weren't confident, confident in their, their company, you know, Casablanca at the time because they were, they were threatening to leave right around this time. Uh, so how much more effort, if you're thinking about maybe leaving, going to another uh, company, possibly, um, I don't know. I can't remember who that might've been, but, uh, it could have been Warner Atlantic. It was Atlantic, right? Uh, yeah. So uh, they weren't confident. Uh, you know, why promote it? They were, uh, and then the other thing with rock and roll all night. Um, I, I can only imagine this when they're sitting there uh, in the room and they're saying, "Okay, what are we going to put on the set list for this tour or this show?" And and you know, uh, well, rock and roll all night's a single now. You know. Uh, no, let's not put that on there. It's like, what, what are you thinking? I mean, you, you need to promote your album. If, if you're trying to sell records, you get it, you got to promote it by playing some of the songs off of it. And they're only, uh, you know, playing a couple. Um, you know, it's a solid album, right? Most of the songs, or all the songs are really, they're good. They're good songs. So I don't know why they're, they're, they're not promoting it. Um, again, um, they were thinking about, you know, they thought Casablanca wasn't giving them enough uh, promotion to get them uh, out there, 
you know, to get the fans out there or the public out there to to buy records. Um, so I, you know, I don't know. You know, it's kind of like if you're at a regular job and you're kind of like upset with your boss or you don't like what's going on. You're kind of look, you're kind of shopping around like they're shopping around looking to go to Atlantic. You're looking, you're putting your resume out there. Are you really putting in an honest day's work when you're at the job that you kind of hate? And you don't get along with your boss and. You're kind of thinking, like, what are we doing around here? This is just crap. It's kind of like the same analogy, though, that they they weren't really happy with with what was going on. They're thinking about going somewhere else. We're forced to write this other album. We had to come up with these songs that, that obviously they didn't have a lot of confidence in. You know, it's kind of it's kind of like that kind of scenario. Yeah, I mean, from what I hear, that uh, you know, apart from the fact that they didn't think they were getting properly promoted, I mean, I remember reading, and I think it was. Uh, Ken's book there, what, what, what's on, oh, the Behind the Mask, they were saying something about the fact that they also hadn't received royalties and God knows how long from the label as well. So, I mean, you know, when you're not getting paid, I mean, you're not too anxious to probably do your work. And I remember also reading in another spot where Paul Stanley told uh, Bill Coyne that, you know, they had to go back and to record and that he wasn't inspired to write and that Bill pretty plain to see that they probably weren't ready yet to go back and uh, record at that point. But I mean, considering all those things that happened, you know, um, we got a record that's actually not too bad, you know? I mean, look at all the, the hoopla that was happening, you know, with uh, Joyce, you know, starting to uh, have a relationship with Neil Bogart there and, you know, that whole conflict of interest there. And I mean, I could only imagine what that must have been like to be in the band at that point you know, trying to have things run smoothly when you have all this stuff happening. I mean, you know, next thing you know, they fired, you know, Kenny Kerner and Weiss because, you know, Joyce leaks it over that they're going to try to jump ship to Atlantic. And, you know, those kind of, you know, circumstances probably didn't make for a, you know, an easy circumstance to write a record with, you know. Yeah, no wonder Neil was in the studio with them then. Keep an eye on the boys, make sure they're not doing anything nefarious. Got to keep an eye on Simmons. That Simmons dude, you know, Neil, Neil Bogart was a smart man. But promotion-wise, we don't have a single out, but we've got Midnight Special is, for me, one of their top early performances just because you get to see their proper stage, you know, with the little yellow velvety thing going around the bottom of uh, Peter's drum riser. And they, they record that, what, April 1st. 1975, Burbank, California, NBC Studios. It's not broadcast until, I think, July and November for, you know, a couple of songs here and there. Um, just just looking at my notes here, She and Deuce were the first two. So, for the album, they're promoting it with performances of She and Come On and Love Me from the album. Again, we, we get back to these are the first two songs. The first two songs in the set. Why isn't Come On and Love Me out as a single? Backed with She. I mean, there's no single release. It, it just boggles the mind. But let's talk about Midnight Special. Where does that fall in terms of, you know, what you think of Kiss's early TV performances? Because to me, this thing is absolutely incredible. It's, it is my favorite, without a doubt. I like it even better than uh, Dick Clark. So, Lonnie? One of the best, absolutely. And it's... It's it's them. They're they're hungry and they just sound fantastic on there. I mean, 
and like you said, you get to see the, the stage. It's not them on the, you know, other television appearances that they had prior to that. It it looks like Kiss, and it they and they sound incredible. It's 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 one of my favorites as well, as far as TV appearances go. If not my favorite TV appearances, they because uh, I I can't say enough good things about it. I'm just not going to sit here and just ramble on about how great it is because we all know it's great. But it it is in. To me, it doesn't get any better than that, and it's it's kind of you know, and it's one of those appearances too that, if, you know, you're talking to a friend or a buddy who doesn't know much about the band. It's it's one of those things that you could show them, you know, a few songs without having to show them. Oh, sit down and watch Cobo Hall from January '76. Here, watch these few songs right here, and and just just watch this. And this is this is why I love the band so much. Yeah, and of course, "Come on and Love Me" wasn't even broadcast, so go figure. Um, it's included on, uh, well, Come and Love Me is not included on anything, but Kissology has uh, Black Diamond and Black and White. You go and find Burt Sugarman's legendary performances DVD, you get it in color. So there you there you go. Uh, Ken, what do you think of Midnight Special? Um, it's fantastic. It's, it's Kiss in their true environment. Um, uh, it's They've gotten all the... Uh, you want to call it us the webs out from maybe touring in the first year or so uh they're now they're just a solid a solid unit they got everything down um everything's tight uh it's just it's just classic kiss i mean it's kind of it reminds me of a little bit of you know um uh, the one at winterland you know that kind of performance um it's it's just classic uh, kiss and uh, it just shows that they're gonna run over you know they're just gonna steamroll right over you you may not know who they are but it's like i can imagine those people who are there probably seeing them for the first time it's like holy crap what the heck is this you know they, yeah their jaws probably dropped um and i think this is the one where i think it was at the end of black diamond they do the the uh, Peter Chris destroys yeah. his dr- drums, right? Set and kicks it out and the whole bit. And, and then you can see right at the end that people are scrambling, grabbing, trying to gra- <laughs> grab freebies of the instruments uh, that are laying there. But uh, yeah, yeah, they you can see at the beginning of uh, some of the performances, they were kind of toned out. They didn't, the, the audience didn't know how to react, it looked like. But then once it got into it, you can see they were really getting into it, enjoying it, pumping their fists and the, the whole thing. So uh, it's it's one of the most classic performances uh, of that time on TV. Yeah, I mean, by that time, people knew who Kiss were. You know, they, they've gone from being nobodies who probably scratching their heads with Dick Clark or Mike Douglas, you know, the previous year, um, to, you know, now they're playing 1,500, 4,000-seat theaters on their own. I mean, they're the headliners in most cases. Um, touring with Rush opening still, some other bands here, I think Status Quo, uh, James Gang, a couple that pop into mind. Um, Marcus, what was your thoughts on the video? You know, that's really all we have promotionally. Well, I mean, I've always view, viewed it as essential viewing for anybody who's into Kiss. I mean, whenever I watch the Kissology, the whole, that's one of the things I never skip over is the Midnight Special. I mean, I've always thought that Kiss were smart in one thing, that they always capitalized on their television appearances. They always seemed to 
give it an extra 100% when they were on it. I mean, the, the Clark thing, I think they did well on. Even the, the was that a TV show again? I, the name, Mike Douglas. Mike Douglas. I mean, even, even that, I mean, as kooky and weird as it was, I mean, because it was so strange, I mean, I'm sure it had people talking, and, and that's the kind of thing you want to have television for, is to get people talking, right? So even that kind of worked out as something good for them. But I think Midnight Special is one of the best appearance of them live on a stage and i mean on on a television stage i mean it's a different environment than a regular concert thing i mean i've always heard that you know you have to maybe turn down the volume a bit because it's television and this and that there's different circumstances while filming but i mean they put on a great performance on that i mean i've always thought that the whole thing at the end with black diamond with the you know, they had the pyro and the flash pots and they kicked over the drum set. I mean, they let people know that they meant business. And by the end of that, I mean, they probably easily doubled their audience just from television from that. I mean, it's, it's, that's what TV's for. And I mean, Bill Coin came from television, so he knew the, how important television was and what it could do for the band. So props to him for getting him on, getting them on these kinds of things, because I'm guaranteed that that's, what helped them get to where they were and putting on a great performance like that also had to happen and they, they delivered. So, I mean, you talked about Bill O'Connor and, and TV background. They finally, and I, I guess they, they innovate in a certain way, Cobo Hall. They record two performance videos to use as, you know, advertisements as such, you know, kind of early promotional videos you know, so rock and roll all night and come on love me, which I just find absolutely stunning to this day. I mean, it's the alive stage from the cover. Uh, it's it's everything wrapped up in there. How do you take those videos? I mean, is is that the ultimate of this era of Kiss? Because once you hit those performances, you know that that's the cutoff date. That's alive now. Uh, the set list is the alive set essentially. You still get a few songs here and there. But Dress to Kill's Overwood. They're now working on a live. They filmed these two promo videos for Dress to Kill, but that's going to sum up the whole Alive era. How do you take those videos, Ken? I think they were great. I mean, uh, the first time I saw them, I thought, man, this shows them, you know, still energetic. Uh, I don't know why they didn't do those right off the bat, put those out right when the album came out. It would have been a smart thing to do. Um, you know, even even the the album cover itself itself for Dressed to Kill is kind of probably confusing to people. Uh, <laughs> these guys dressed in suits, you know. Uh, even the I want I want to say the first three album covers they they should have put Kiss on there with their instruments, especially the first album. But even even this album, uh, they should have done that. But the the videos would have been a a smart thing to release earlier than later. It was kind of too late at that point but I, I love watching those videos they're great I mean you know of course there's lip sync things but uh, it shows them you know very energetic showing that they're very energetic band and and uh, but it's still it's not it doesn't match up to the the midnight special real live performance yeah I'm looking at the the, the screen captures I've got a, as part of the FAQs concept video archive I'm like wow you know even now, just looking at it, I'm not even looking at the video, it's, yeah, that's cool. But album cover, yeah, packaging, here's a label that's nearly bankrupt at this point, or struggling, in the very least, and they give you a beautiful embossed cover. I mean, 
That's just nuts. Uh, is that the quintessential Kiss cover, though? Them in suits, just a complete contradiction in some ways. An embossed cover, uh, you know, 20 minutes of music. <laughs> I, I mean, is that just Kiss all over? Lonnie, what do you think on all that? That is, that is, that is a good point. That is, that is great. Uh, and it's Kiss at their finest. Like, the, the only, it's only 20 minutes of music, but we're going to give you this great presentation, though, this embossed cover. You know, I mean, that, that really is Kiss. Um, and I, I can see how the, the band in, in suits is, especially put yourself, I mean, you look at that now, it's just, it's a classic photo and, and people, you know, geeks go to New York, kiss geeks go to New York and, oh, I got to get my picture at the intersection. You know, people just still gush over that. But at the time, I, you know, you read stories about when they're doing that album cover that they didn't know what to do for the album cover. And they're like, um, well, let's put the guys in, in suits and put them on a street corner just for something different. And, and none of them, except Peter, even owned the suit at the time. <laughs> so, you know, they're all wearing, I think, both Neil's suits and stuff like that. And, you, you know, if you look at it, you can tell, like, it's they look like high waters on Sheen. And uh, yeah. it's uh, it's very it's very unique that, you know, but... And the record company's going broke, and we got to have Neil Bogart produce it. But let's... When we put out the, when we put out the album, let's emboss the, the record itself, though. It's just... I don't know. I, I, I bet their accountants were scratching their heads at that point, saying, "What are we doing? Why are we doing this? You don't realize what this is costing us just to have them in boss like that." Did they have? So, a, yeah. Did they have accountants, or had the accountants They're already not. had already <laughs> leaped? I mean, that that album covers well the corn. I'm just again looking at notes. Here. Well, they should have. They should have done the the whole photo shoot. The photo shoot was wasn't it part of it where they're getting in the phone booth? Yeah, the yeah. phone booth. Yeah. You see that thing? In, in, it's the, the Superman kind of thing, right? Yeah. Uh, they could have yeah, done going to that s- with panels, and and it probably would have been a better. Yeah, p- a pictorial yeah. cartoon type strip of the the sequence of you know going into the booth down on the uh, what is it down on the 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 subway station thing you know reading newspapers and the, you know it, right, right. but i, I don't yeah. think well, I th- from what I, go ahead mark no i was just gonna say from what i remember the whole thing of the picture was that they were going into the phone booth you know for the whole superman thing to go save the world from a john denver concert apparently that's when the whole <laughs> storyline apparently for it was that they were going in, getting changed, and saving everybody from the john denver concert getting rid of all his posters around town and putting up kiss ones apparently and you know i mean the thing about the whole record thing if you just don't mind me jumping in here with this was i i, I think though this is an early indication though where kiss wanted to go or at least neil bogart wanted to with the giving the fans a little bit something extra i mean at this point he didn't have a lot of cash so maybe the embossed cover was the only thing he could afford to do because we all know what happens next they do a live they come up with an eight-page booklet from here on in there's always something more to it. I mean, Rock and Roll Over had the big sticker. You know, there was a poster pretty much in every other one. Like, on Mass had a poster. Dynasty had a poster. You know, I mean, there's another huge booklet in Alive 2. You know, there's a gun in Love Gun. I mean, they they were going that way. But like you said, restriction of money, I guess the embossed cover was all they could do at that point, right? So I think it kind of made sense that they did it. I mean, they wanted to set themselves apart. Right, from everybody else. I mean, who who else had an embossed cover like that? I don't know, but were they the first? Or I don't know. No. Uh, you know what? They were so low on money at the time. They they left a K out of the yeah. logo. Oh, it, 
<laughs> that, which I never recognized uh, originally until someone brought it up a couple of years ago to me. Like, hey, there's a there's an S missing from one of the logos. Yeah, Matt there. Porter brought that up to me when I bought the album because I was doing an album thing on my on uh, the vinyl page, and I was showing a picture of each album, and they were talking about it. And he was the one who actually brought that up with the whole missing S. I never noticed it either. So let's. Let... Where does this fit for you in in terms of let's say the classic six? Where does this rank and, and put you on the spot? Really, you know, um, for me, it really is not up there as an album. I will put the debut up high just because of the number of classics on that album. The sound of it, I happen to really like. I mean, obviously, it's not as good as a demo. I'll put Rock and Roll Over above it just because that's perfect kiss for me. Um, you know, quite possibly my number one kiss album as of, uh, 10 AM Pacific time today. Anyway, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not really sure where it goes against, and you know, it's sonically it's similar to love gun that I, I find it very uninspired sounding. It's solid. Don't get me wrong. I, I find it to be, it, it's a great album. It sounds good, but I find it a little bit lacking in dynamics. Um, which you really get out of the edge of rock and roll over. So Love Gun and Dress to Kill for me are, are sister albums in terms of both being a little bit neutered and safe and I, I don't really want to use the word, but boring sonically. There's nothing that jumps out of the speakers and it assaults me when listening to either of those albums. And Destroyer's just in its own category because it's unlike anything else. So for me, it's down towards the lower end of the original six. So I'm, you know, I'm going to probably put it in fifth or sixth place there. Um, what about you guys? Where do you rank it? Um, and I won't go to Ken first this time, Lonnie. <laughs> <laughs> give you, give you a moment to think about it, Lonnie. I'll throw you to the wolves. He's, just, he's throwing you under the bus all day. <laughs> <coming here for. laughs> um, I put it in the middle, maybe, maybe four, um, because. Of those six, I think everybody's going to have rock and roll over one or two. And for me, I, I really put Destroyer up there um, just because of what it means to me in my personal timeline. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, I can't. I, I really like the album. I was singing its praises when we started the show. Um, but of those six albums, I'd probably put it put it four, I think. If I had to, um, behind Rock and Roll Over and Destroyer and and probably the first album, just because of the just because of the classic tunes that are on that first album. You know, I mean, they're still in the set list forty three years later, even though we're on fortieth anniversary tour. Mark. Well. um... Well, as we all know, I've ranked Rock and Roll over numero uno, and it would be still that way with the six. Um, and it's hard to say. I mean, honestly, the record that I would let rank the least, to be honest, and there's a few reasons, is Destroyer. Uh, just because, I mean, everybody and their brother, like, always talks about Destroyer. And I, uh, and I heard it so much growing up, and, and I just think I just got overkilled with that record as I was growing up from my friends who were into Kiss and stuff like that. And I don't know, I just, 
Uh, don't get me wrong, I like the songs on it, but I wouldn't. I don't think I would put it near the top. Like I said, and I also think that the production is just way different from what a Kiss record should be. But that's just my opinion. Um, Dress to Kill, I guess I would probably put it fourth, maybe. I mean, Hotter Than Hell, I would place under it for sure. Um, and like you said, on the first album, even though it's not sonically as good, um, I mean, that's pretty much a greatest hits album. I mean, every song on that first album, I mean, they, with the exception of probably Love Theme from Kiss, they probably play that and include it on their set list, like lots of them, the songs are still included. I mean, have they ever not did a tour with Black Diamond? I mean, come on. Uh, and, you know, Love Gun, that to me has a special spot for me. That's why I probably rank it as high as it is. And I mean, when you're talking about the production of it, I've always thought that that's kind of an odd album because I've always figured that Eddie Kramer had more to do with Ace and Peter's tunes than he did with the rest of them. I kind of get the feeling that Paul and Gene at that point were kind of like, you know, wanted to control their own stuff more because I, I kind of noticed a sonic difference between their songs and like, for example, Shock Me always seems to be, comes out more heavier than the rest of the songs on that record. I always kind of got that vibe that Eddie Kramer had more to do with those songs. But in any case, we're talking about Dress to Kill. Um, I would say Dress to Kill would be like fourth for me in the list. All right, Ken, you've had time to think this time. All right, right. <laughs> so Dress to Kill, I agree with you, Julian, about uh, the, 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 the sound of it as compared to uh, Love Gun. Um, that kind of same tone to a degree um the thing with dress to kill again is it's it's not fully realized i think again they were rushed they were lacking songs so for that matter and for the lacking uh, solos too in that uh, i kind of i think i put that as number six of the of my six actually um where i have rock and roll over as number one and uh, and then probably kiss after that and uh, and uh, hotter than hell. So I you know I, I would put destroyer. I know I put destroyer above love gun around even with love gun for me. But um, yeah, that dress to kill is number six because it's it's kind of incomplete, and the songs are so short, the solos, um, it's just. It's just a rush down. I, though, you know what? Even though those, we talk about the, the classic six, you know, the original six, those are all great albums in their own right. This is just a matter of this one just falls up for me at the bottom of those six. Yeah, and that's the funny thing about it. When we talk about the best of the first six, yeah. I mean, come on, the first six. It's not a bad album. You know, that, that is Kiss. That is quintessential. That is the core of the catalog. And everything that comes after is something of a, you know, whatever. You know, these are the original six when they're they were four four united guys, really, or at least we think they were. Um, you know, so one thing we haven't talked about today much uh, is the bootlegs and lives because what's the point when you're talking about dress to kill? If you want a great recording from the tour, go out and buy a live. So 
you know, obviously there's there's the two eras of the tour. First, before kind of May 16th, which is a couple of songs on the album and the set. And then they start messing around with everything and it becomes alive. So it becomes a little bit pointless to discuss that. Um, you know, let's wrap up Dress to Kill. Um, you know, any least favorite songs and final thoughts on it? I mean, stuff, deluxe edition, would that make any sense? Uh, I mean, I don't think we know of enough stuff that's actually out there. Uh, obviously, the demos of that we mentioned earlier do exist. It would be great to have in perfect quality added onto the album. But um, final thoughts on the album, Lonnie? You know, I don't, I don't think a deluxe edition for, I think, for Dress to Kill would work. I think there's plenty of, I don't, I don't think there's a lot of material out there because I think this is what they came up with because they didn't have a whole lot to work with. I think there's plenty of other albums that, that would, I would love to see a deluxe treatment of, um, a proper deluxe treatment of anyway, um, more than Trust to Kill. Um, but it's, it, is a, it, it is a great album. If I had to pick a least favorite song on there, I don't know. I guess I'd say Ladies in Waiting. And not that it's a bad song because it's like picking a, a least favorite of the of the of the uh, first six Kiss albums. I mean, it's it's hard to say. I'm not saying it's bad, but if I had one that it's forgettable for me, it'd be Ladies in Waiting. Um, but Dress to Kill is is to me it's it's Kiss right before they they made it. They're on the cusp of becoming the juggernaut that they became with Alive. And although maybe the wheels were maybe falling off a little bit at the time because, you know, they're shopping around with record company and maybe not had a lot of faith in the company and the record company at the time, but it was the, the last piece of the puzzle before they put Alive together and, and became what we know them as today. So um, I like the album. Uh, even though I rank, even though I would rank it fourth, you know, like you said, it's, it's like picking a. It's, it's hard to say. It's not that I dislike it. It's those classic albums. You can't say even if you ranked it like sixth, like Ken did. It's not you dislike the album, but it's just it's hard because those albums are just so essential to what Kiss is. So it's a great album. I like it, and deluxe treatment. I don't think it would work though. Yeah, I guess it's sometimes like uh, asking someone who their favorite child is. You, you, right. just, you just can't do it. Mark, final thoughts on Dress to Kill. Well, um, I'd say my least favorite song is, like I said before, anything for my baby just doesn't do anything really for me. But, I mean, like you guys said, I mean, I mean, it's the whole catalog or the whole discography from the first six are just classic stuff. I mean, how can you really not like something from those records? But... Yeah, that's just like my least favorite song off of that. As far as the deluxe thing goes, I mean, I agree in the sense that there doesn't seem to be really much that they can do. But there's one thing I think they could do that I think would be really cool is they could make a deluxe if they did something with, I don't know if you guys follow Yes at all, but uh, they just released now something called Progeny, where they released seven live shows from a tour. And it was multi-track stuff. It was not fixed up. Because I have it, I listened to it. There was there's errors galore on it that you know feedback and things dropped out. And as we all know, they recorded you know on this tour for a live. I mean, what would be really cool? I'm guessing they would never do this though. Is to just maybe make a little box set from that era, include uh, you know a remixed or remastered version of Dress to Kill, and include those shows that Alive were from, but 
put them in their original form. Who cares if they've screwed up or if there's a feedback or, you know, the singing is a little out of tune here and there. You know, I think the KISS fans would die to hear those original source tapes in their entirety untouched, you know. You know, the, the, uh, right now I know YES fans are just dying over this box set because it's, you know, the real deal. It's re real shows top to bottom and KISS, you know, I'm sure have done that throughout their career where they've taped and filmed themselves and stuff like that. Why not make something like that where you can make a box set around that period? They could do it for a lot of the later period, I'm sure, for what they did later on i mean why can't they do something like that for this but i mean you know we know how gene and paul are when it comes to stuff like this unless they get paid big bucks you're never gonna see it right so but i think that they could do something around it but uh you know will they ever do it who knows i doubt it but um yeah i think they could do something with it so there's there's plenty of time if anyone is listening out there before the 40th anniversary of Kiss Alive that maybe a alive box, you know, with all those recordings that, I mean, there's five recordings, I believe, um, you know, Detroit, Cleveland, Davenport, and yeah. Wildwood. New Jersey. Yep. Well, since we're on the 40th anniversary of the band, though, the 40th anniversary, they might not celebrate the 40th anniversary of Alive till. 2018 or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, they can, they they can do whatever they want. Ken, Ken, your final thoughts and least favorite track, uh, I guess. Well, my least favorite, I agree with uh, Lonnie. Ladies in waiting would be my least favorite, but uh, again, I still enjoy it. It's just the least favorite. Um, so, and whether this could get a deluxe treatment, I think it would probably be the last. One of, one of the last ones, uh, other than maybe some make non makeup album, to, to get a uh, deluxe uh, treatment. I agree uh, with Mark that yeah, they should probably include something live with it. Um, you know, even you know DVD or just audio live uh, as a part of a box set. And if they can dig up uh, other demo versions of these songs or or uh, any other demos they might have had laying out. Well, maybe not the one that Julian played earlier. <laughs> but I'm uh, sorry, I didn't mean to ruin your morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wouldn't. I don't think I'd put that one on there. But uh, there might be something else out there that they could put on it. But uh, it's still still a great album from the you know the classic six and uh, from the beginnings. And uh, it's you know I recommend it to anybody who doesn't have it who is a kiss fan at all, you know even a little bit uh, they should they should pick it up yeah so i'm, I'm gonna put my least favorite song and it's getaway i just find that too happy crappy uh it just it doesn't go anywhere it doesn't have any point it doesn't have anything it's just it's just meaningless to me that song i mean even as much as i i don't like you know some of the kind of the outlook in ladies in waiting and two timer they've at least got a story Getaway just is repetitive drivel to me, um, but it's still fun. It's fun, dumb rock and roll. Okay, um, so it's just the least favorite. And I, I think Dress to Kill to wrap it up, their first top forty album. You know, so they'd obviously made strides. Everything comes together later in the year with Alive. So it, it's hard to separate Dress to Kill from Alive because it's the tour, it's the album, it's the you know last of the three studio efforts from which everything else is built on. So it, it's kind of the end of prehistory because Kiss takes off with Alive. Um, it's a decent album. 
you know it again it's not one of my favorites but you know every everyone uh, can you know chime in on the board when we put this topic up later today and uh, give their opinions and thoughts and also anything that we've missed because obviously there's there's a lot in, to talk about when we're you know going over these albums that we don't necessarily have the knowledge uh or instantaneous reference to be able to dig into so you know give us your give us your thoughts on the album out there uh and thank you all for joining me today so let's let's call that a wrap for dress to kill that's a, a brief history of time dress to kill thank you ken thank you lonnie thank you mark thank you thank you and mark welcome to the show Thank you very much. It was great doing it. Awesome. Thank you, everyone.